Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Director of Missions Mobilization, Dave Harden. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning, we're going to talk about the gospel. And uh, I hope that you never get tired of hearing about the gospel. Because as we'll see here, the gospel is the power of God to not only save us, but the gospel is is also the power of God to transform us. And God does this all for his glory. And um, it is good to be gathered together here as the family of River Bluff, both here in person and online, so that together, corporately, we can worship our amazing, mighty, and awesome God. So it is a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you all. One of the things I want to encourage us to do today is to actually get out your Bibles. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you or beside you. Maybe you have the Bible app on your phone. But what what I don't want this morning to be is just me here presenting to you God's Word and the Gospel. What, What I encourage us all to do is to actually work through this together, corporately, going through God's Word together in pulling out the gospel from this amazing passage that we have before us today. And so we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 15 through 18. And I'll go ahead and read that for us in a second, but just to set up the context here, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Paul had never been to Rome at this point that he writes this letter to the church there. Paul says he longed to go to Rome on his way to Spain on a mission trip there to bring them encouragement, to be be able to share this gospel with them in person. But this is the gospel summary that we have here in verses 1 through 8. And Paul received this gospel as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ with the charge with the command to take this gospel to the Gentiles. So with that, let's take a look at uh, Romans 1 through 8, and then verses 15 through 16. If you'll notice in looking at your Bibles, which I hope you are, verses 1 through 8 is actually one long sentence. So let me read this, starting with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me move ahead to verses 15 to 18. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is God's word. And really to do this justice, to to really take a look at these first eight verses and then the the supplementary verses that we looked at there, we we would need three months or, or more to really unpack this. Paul takes the rest of the book of Romans, all 16 chapters, to unpack this gospel summary that we see here at the beginning. 
And so what I want to do is as we work through this together, I want to pull out some of the points that Paul is saying are elements of the gospel, elements that we need to know, elements that we need to be reminded of in our lives, moment by moment, day by day. So to begin with, let's take the word gospel. And the word gospel means good news. So as we look at the word gospel, we see that the gospel is news. The gospel must be announced. Whether that be in written word or spoken word, the gospel is news. And we have it here with us today in written form. But just think about this. What, what would it be like if a family went as missionaries to a people group who had never heard the gospel before? And they get there to this people group and they say, hey, we're going to make our home among you and um, we're going to live among you and we've got good news for you. And so they, they begin to live there. They begin to to live amongst these people. They do great, loving, kind deeds among these people, but they never speak that good news. Will those people that have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, will they be able to truly understand that good news that these missionaries had said that they had brought them? No. Why? Because they they hadn't spoken it to them. They hadn't presented it in written form to them. And so there's this This famous saying from St. Francis that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, guess what? That's hogwash. That is not scriptural whatsoever. Because the Bible clearly tells us that the gospel is good news, news which must be announced either in spoken form or written form. So that's the first point we see as we begin to take a look at Paul's gospel summary here. The second thing that we see is Paul, as he describes himself, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So the second point that we see here is that the gospel is God-centered, which also means that the gospel is not you-centered. Oftentimes, we take this good news from God, and we we tend to make it about ourselves. We make statements such as, God couldn't imagine all of eternity in heaven without us. Well, first of all, I'd like to see where we find that in Scripture. But second of all, there was eternity past before God created the world. And did God need us? At that time, was God missing us? No. So the gospel is about us, but it's primarily about God. It's news from God about what God has done for God's glory. So it's news from God, about God, and for God. And the gospel is not about how much God needs or wants you. God doesn't need you at all. God is not a needy God. Does God want you? Yeah. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. But that's not what it's all about. It's all about God and his glory. And so we see that the gospel is news. We see that the gospel is God-centered. And I won't have time this morning to go through all the scriptural references for time's sake. But, But please follow along as we track this gospel summary that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 1. So he goes on to say, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so we see that the gospel is not only news, the gospel is not only God-centered, but the gospel is word-centered. We have the gospel here in written form, news from God, about God, for God, in His glory. And so, all of Scripture here tells us this good news. The good news of the gospel is found in God's story. 
of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation by God, fall from God, redemption to God, consummation through God. And so Paul here says that this was announced by God beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, a couple chapters later in Romans 3, 21, he tells us something of, of the same thing. He says here, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made plainly clear. We're going to come back to this passage. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And you see, what Paul is trying to tell us here in this gospel summary is that all that we have before he wrote this letter to the Romans, all of the Old Testament, all of the gospel accounts are pointing us to Jesus Christ and his perfect life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the Father. All of what we have in the Old Testament is simply signs and shadows pointing us forward to Jesus Christ, God's plan of redemption through him. And so we're called to take the Old Testament and read it and see the shadows of that thing which is real. Read the book of Hebrews that comes up over and over and over again. These things are just simply shadows. The Old Testament law, the Old Testament priesthood, all that God had initiated were shadows of the reality which is found in Jesus Christ. All those things are signs pointing us to a destination. And that destination is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says here in his gospel summary that God announced this news ahead of time in all of Scripture pointing us to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The next thing we see as we continue to track here through Romans 1 and Paul's gospel summary is he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. This is the crescendo. This is the top of the mountain of the gospel. It's God's news about what he has done that we find in the scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And then he tells us a little bit about why this is good news. So we see that the gospel is news. We see that the gospel is God-centered. We see that the gospel is word-centered. And now we see here Paul telling us that the gospel is Christ-centered. It's concerning his son. And he gives us some details of what that means, what that looks like. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. There's one thing that Paul is very intentional in doing when he tells us this. It's concerning Jesus, who is descended from David. In his humanity, Jesus was born into the line of David. And to understand what Paul is telling us here, we need to go back into the Old Testament and take a look at one of those signs that God gives us. So please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to take a look at what is known as the Davidic covenant, this covenant that God makes with David, this covenant promise. And we're going to take a look at 2 Samuel verses 12 through 15. So please read this along with me. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Talking about David. Who shall come, the offspring is talking about Christ, but is um, addressed to David. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, Jesus Christ. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's how we know it's Jesus. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So we see Jesus here being mentioned as a king, a king who God will place on his throne forever. And so when Paul, in his gospel summary, very intentionally says concerning his son, concerning Jesus, who was descended from David, he's got this in mind. David will have this offspring whom God will place on the throne forever and ever, talking about Jesus Christ. So in this gospel summary, we need to see Jesus as king. And then we need to understand what that means for us in our lives. Let's take a look at another Old Testament passage, which once again is, is a sign pointing forward to Jesus. And typically this is a passage that we would read uh, during Christmas time. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to take a look at verses 6 through 8. So please turn there with me so that we can track through this together. Isaiah 9. Verses 6 through 8. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. In the government, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So once again, we see here in Paul's gospel summary, as he talks about Jesus, God's son, being descended from David, he's pointing to this truth that part of the gospel means embracing Jesus as king. This king who has an eternal throne, this king who rules with justice and righteousness forever and ever. And so what we're called to do is to believe that and live our lives out of that. Which means that we're called to submit our, all of our lives to this king. This eternal king who rules in justice and righteousness. But you see the truth about submitting our lives to this king is it's not something that we have to do. It's actually something we get to do. I, I know most of us, including myself, don't like that word submit because that means like we feel like we're putting ourselves under something. Somebody else is, is controlling, calling the shots. But you see, Jesus is a good and perfect and just and righteous king. And what Paul is saying here is that it's actually a privilege to submit our lives to him. It's something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. We get to become into his kingdom. We get to become part of his kingdom. And it's a privilege for us. And so this idea of seeing Jesus as king and submitting all of our life to him becomes something that we get to do. Because we know that as king, he's ruling over us in justice and righteousness, providing protection and provision and peace and joy as we submit our lives to him. Why wouldn't we want to submit to him? What is the alternative to that? So as we continue here in Paul's gospel summary, the summary of this news that God announces to us in the scriptures concerning his son as the righteous king. He goes on to say, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul, once again, is very intentional 
in these words. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, but take a look at this. We get to see the Trinity here in this gospel summary, this gospel passage. We get to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all playing a role in this gospel that Paul is giving to us here. And he calls the Spirit, he could say a lot of things about the Spirit. The Spirit is um, given to us in Scripture as the Spirit of God, is given to us as the Spirit of Christ. It's given to us as the Holy Spirit. And here he says, the spirit of holiness. So he's, he's focusing on this idea of holiness here. So we see that as we take a look at this idea of the gospel being Christ-centered, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And to help us understand that, let's take a look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. So please turn there with me, and let's, let's take a look at this together. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And he goes on and gives a, a further description of um, that gospel that is of first importance that he talks about here. And so we see that the gospel is Christ-centered. It's talking about Christ as king. We get to submit our lives to this amazing king. But the gospel is also centered on the perfect life the death of Jesus on the cross, his burial, his resurrection to life again three days later, his ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And so the gospel is Christ-centered. talks about his being a king, but it also talks about his life and the plan of redemption that we see through Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so, we see that the gospel is incredibly Christ-centered. That's why I said this is the crescendo of this gospel summary that Paul is giving us here. To further unpack that, Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25, tells us a little bit more of what that looks like. So, Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4, a few pages over. And let's uh, read verses 20 through 25. Paul here, talking about Abraham and his faith, as he's using Abraham's example of faith in the gospel, says in verse 20, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That word justification that Paul uses there means to be declared righteous, to be declared right before God. And that's all based on the premise that we put our belief, we put our faith in what Jesus did at the cross in his resurrection. It says there that he, he died for our transgressions. He, he took our sins upon himself when he was crucified on the cross. And then three days later, when he raised to life again, it was for our justification. 
so that we too, if we put our faith in that gospel truth, would be declared right before God. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would not be declared right before God for putting our faith in that gospel truth. And so Paul here in this gospel summary in telling us that the gospel is Christ-centered, a sub-point that we could put in is that the gospel is also cross-centered. Go ahead and write that in your notes. The gospel is news, the gospel is God-centered, the gospel is word-centered, the gospel is Christ-centered, and the gospel is cross-centered. Take away the cross from the gospel, and we have no good news at all. We still bear our sins. We're not declared right before God. And as we're going to see here in a little bit, that's very bad news. Very, very bad news. And so we see in this gospel summary here, Paul telling us that in, in Christ, and in Christ alone, this gospel is played out as he takes our sins upon himself, as he's raised again on the third day for our justification, being declared right before God. And, and so as we move on in this gospel summary here, we come to the next point that Paul brings out here. And he says here in verse 5, through whom we, that pronoun we is talking about the apostles, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so the next thing that we see in this gospel summary is that the purpose of the gospel is to transform lives for the sake of God's glory. When we talk about for the sake of his name, that's talking about, it gives you the idea of God being glorified. So the purpose of the gospel is to transform lives for God's glory. And so what I want to do with this is I want us to take a look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. I'm not actually going to turn there. I'm hoping that many of us are familiar with the Great Commission, what we find there in Matthew 28. And there Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I'm sending you out to make disciples among all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So there's that, that idea of obedience of faith that Paul talks about here in Romans 1. We find it in, built into even the Great Commission. This commission that he gave to his apostles and to us as his disciples nowadays. If we put our trust in the gospel message here. And part of that is the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that comes out of faith. And, and to kind of unpack that for us, there's a tool that we use here at River Bluff that's called the Covenant Triangle. And I've taken that and I've modified it just slightly and it, to, to show the importance of the gospel and how that plays out. So with that triangle, we see at the very top there is the gospel. And we're called to put our faith in the gospel. When we look at this term, obedience of faith, it has two senses to it. That first sense, the obedience of faith, is that um, obedience to the gospel. That means coming into faith in the gospel, beginning to believe it for the first time. That's the obedience of faith. But then the obedience of faith is then after we've come to believe in it, to actually live it out. And so, at the top of that triangle, we see the word gospel. We enter into this right relationship with God by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By no other way, only by believing in this gospel message that we find in Scripture. And then if you look down at the, the bottom right-hand 
um, point of that triangle, you'll see that it talks about our gospel identity. What that is talking about is what God says is true of us when we have put our faith in the gospel message concerning his son, who is king, who is savior, who is Lord. And our gospel identity is what God says, this is now true of you because you have put your faith and your trust in the gospel. You are adopted into God's family. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You've been given all blessings in the heavenly realms. And we could go on and on and on. And what God tells us to do in Scripture is to begin to believe in that message, to continue to believe in that message of the gospel, and then to believe in what God says is true of us, that we're dearly loved, that we've been shown grace, we've been shown mercy. And then we get to live that out. So what does that look like for us to live out of our gospel identity? Well, it looks like this. We've been loved by God as part of our gospel identity, so we get to love others. We've been shown grace by God. That's part of our gospel identity. So how do we get to treat others? With the same grace that God showed us. We've been given mercy by God. It's part of our gospel identity. So how do we live that out? We get to be merciful toward others. And like I said, we could go on and on. That, that could be a two-year sermon series in and of itself. We don't have that this morning. We have a few minutes. But we start with the gospel and our belief in the gospel. We move on to our gospel identity, what God says is true of us because we put our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as we live out of our gospel identity, we obey God. You see, oftentimes, we get this backwards. We think that we need to obey God so that then we could be brought into this right relationship with him. But that's not how Scripture presents it. Scripture says we believe in the gospel. God says that these things are now true of us, and as we live out of our gospel identity, then obedience flows out of that. That's what Paul is talking about here when he says that obedience that comes from faith. And so this is just a helpful tool to help us picture that gospel flow, gospel, gospel identity, obedience. Obedience comes out of us just living out of our gospel identity. I want to take us to an Old Testament pack, passage that I think really helps us to understand what Paul is talking about here when he says the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for his glory. And, and I wish for time's sake we had time to read through all of this. So turn with me to Ezekiel 20. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I wish we could. It is an amazing chapter. Once again, found in the Old Testament, a sign pointing us to the gospel in God's glory. So here in Ezekiel chapter 20, I'm going to take us through some preliminary, and then we'll read a certain section of it. But we have God through the prophet Ezekiel, and the elders of Israel have come, wanting a word from God. And God says, this is what you will tell these elders of Israel. And he goes through and he recounts all that God has done for the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, up to that time. And even before they were freed from slavery in Egypt, God made a promise to them. And we pick that up in Ezekiel 20, verse 6. It says, On that day I swore to them, the people of Israel, that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of lands. So God's making this amazing promise to the people of Israel. They're crying out because they're being cruelly mistreated as slaves in Egypt. And God says, I swore to them that I would bring them out. 
But let's move on a couple verses. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Catch this, verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So as we, as we move on here, we see that God does bring them out of the land of Egypt. The next verse, verse 10. So I, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. The people of Israel get into the wilderness and, and they come to Mount Sinai and God gives them his rules and regulations and commands for living. And we pick up here the story in verse 13. After God had given them his commandments, verse 13 says, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. First they rebelled against him in Egypt. Now they're rebelling against him in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. In my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I said, once again we see this, then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. So twice now we see God saying, I want to pour out my wrath upon these rebellious people, but I'm acting for the sake of my name, for the sake of my glory. I will not pour out my wrath upon them. For the sake of all the nations around them that are watching me and what I do with my people. And so the next scenario that we see in this chapter is this idea or this truth that God says, I will not let this generation pass into the promised land. But their offspring, their children will be able to enter in. And so let's pick up that story here in verse 18. And I said to the children in the wilderness... Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And keep my Sabbath holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 21. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. They profane my Sabbath. Then I said, third time here, check it out. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. But I withheld my hand. I wanted to pour out my anger and my wrath. But for the sake of my name, for the sake of my glory, once again, I withheld my hand. I withheld my anger and my wrath against them. Move forward to the New Testament. The only one who did perfectly obey all that God wanted him to do. Jesus Christ, the only perfect and righteous one who was perfectly obedient. We see that God, acting for the sake of his name, here did not withhold his hand, but brought the anger and wrath of God down upon Jesus Christ. Not for everyone, but for those who believe in this gospel message. Those who put their trust in this gospel message. God pours out his wrath and his anger. Does not withhold his hand as he did there in Ezekiel 20. 
but pours out that wrath and anger on Jesus Christ. What a contrast we see here. God acting for the sake of his name, for his glory, doesn't withhold his hand upon Jesus Christ. And so as we take a look at this idea of the gospel being Christ-centered and the purpose of the gospel being that of transforming lives for the sake of God's glory, it continues to point us back to Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience and his taking upon himself the anger and wrath of God for the sake of all those who would put their trust in this gospel message. What an incredible contrast we find here. And so the last point that we see being made here in this gospel summary that Paul gives us comes from verses 15 through 18. Paul says, I'm eager to go to Rome on my way to Spain. I want to do a mission trip to Spain. I'm eager to go to Rome and preach the gospel message to the church in Rome. And then he goes on, and this is the thesis statement for all of the book of Romans. This is the theme statement for the rest of the book of Romans here. It says, for I am not ashamed... Of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But then we get to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress the truth about God, suppress the truth about what God has done through Jesus Christ, this gospel. They don't believe in the gospel. And so we see two things here revealed. We see the righteousness of God revealed. We also see the wrath of God revealed. As Paul talks about it here in, in these verses. And so we see that the gospel is the saving power of God. And to give us a better picture of what that means and what that means for us, turn with me a few chapters um, later here in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to take a look at verses 6 through 10 in Romans 5. And what I want you to see, what I want us to see in here is how God describes every person apart from Jesus Christ. Every person who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, among whom we were at one time. So, starting here in verse 6 of Romans 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the first thing that God tells us is that we were ungodly. And if you haven't put your faith and trust in that gospel message, that's still who you are. So ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if we follow this description, he's saying, at one time we were ungodly sinners. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we live, be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So look at this description that Paul is giving us here in Romans chapter 5. He's given us a description of ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's who we are. Apart from this gospel and us putting our faith and trust in that gospel, that's who we are. Ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. Deserving his wrath. That's what it says right there. And it tells us here that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we put our trust in this gospel message that we're saved from the wrath of God. 
We saw that as we looked at Ezekiel 20 and contrasted that with what Christ did on the cross. He took that wrath that we deserve upon himself because we put our trust in the gospel message, what Christ did, this news that God gives us that we find in scriptures concerning his son. God saves us from his wrath. That's not all he saves us from, but that's what Paul's talking about here in this context. He saves us from much more. But being saved from the wrath of God is a very important thing because you see, God still holds up a lot of wrath. And on the judgment day, all those who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ will bear the full weight of God's anger and wrath upon themselves at that time. But if we put our trust in this gospel message, Christ has taken that on himself, the wrath that we deserve. So we see this description of who we are apart from Christ. Ungodly sinners, enemies of God, deserving his wrath. Paul takes the rest of Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 all the way up to Romans 3.20. And he continues to unpack and describe who we are apart from Christ. And in that description, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one, none apart from Christ who can have a right standing before God who can come into a right relationship with God. But we get to Romans 3.21, and he begins to now unpack the gospel in more detail. And I want to read to us Romans 3.21 through 26. But now, what incredible words. We'll we'll read it. We'll, We'll continue on. But stop for a sec. But now reminds me of another passage that we find in Ephesians chapter 4, where, once again, Paul describes who we are apart from Christ. And then we get to Ephesians 2, 4, and he says, but God, in his mercy, so it's the same idea that Paul's presenting here in Romans, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made plain, made clear, been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here is he's answering a very important question. He's answering the question of how can a righteous, holy, just God forgive ungodly sinners who are his enemies? How can God remain righteous if he forgives sin? Would we want a God who would just look away from sin and say, oh, that's just a a small sin. I'll, I'll let that pass. It's not a big deal. Would we want that kind of God in our life? I don't think we would. Because you see, sin is what brings us destruction and death. God has made that very clear in his word. And so what would it be like for God to say, I'm just gonna pass by this. I'm gonna look the other way. That wasn't a real important thing that would be unloving that would be unjust of God because you see God upholds himself as the most important thing in all of creation and beyond creation 
He wants us to find Him as the greatest treasure and worth. And knowing that sin is looking away from that which is most important, that which is the best thing in all of life, looking away from that to any other thing brings us destruction and death. That's what we call sin. And so it would not be right of God to just overlook sin. So how can God remain righteous and just and holy if he forgives sin? Only by pouring out his anger and wrath on the one who was completely righteous, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I'm going to end with this uh, passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So please turn there with me. Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How could God remain righteous, holy, and just, and yet forgive sin? Only because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, took God's anger and wrath upon himself when we decided to put our faith in this gospel message. So, like I said, I, I wish we could take the next three months of not longer, unpack all that Paul summarizes here in this opening to the letter at Rome, to the Roman church. We don't have that time this morning. So we're going to stop there. Um, at this time, I'd like to ask the worship band to come back up, but kind of just to recap of what we looked at in this gospel message. We see that the gospel is news. We see that the gospel is God-centered. We see that the gospel is word-centered. We see that the gospel is both Christ-centered and cross-centered. We see that the purpose of the gospel is to transform lives for the glory of God. And we see that this gospel message is the saving power of God. And so, as we've rehearsed the elements of the gospel so far in our time together, we've talked about confession, confessing our sins. We've talked about repenting, turning away from our sins and turning to God. And now the other element that we rehearse of the gospel is that of belief, putting our faith in the gospel. And so I'm going to lead us in, in a reading together, which means I'm not going to be the only one talking. We're going to do this together of the Apostles' Creed. So please join me in this reading of the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.